All right, turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. The title of the message is Christ in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know how this is going to go. I told the congregation I was uh, sick this week. I didn't get much time in study. I'm kind of feeble right now. Verse 7. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Awake, O sword, my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Wasn't quite ready to go back to, uh, really, I think this week, the sickness. I was off two days' work. The sickness dictated that I didn't go back to the election series. I wanted more time to study to get some better stuff in for that. And this was a, an article that I was rewriting I'm still not done yet. It's by the same title, and I got to thinking about it and the importance of it, and uh, this theme kind of just kept coming back to mind about Christ in the hands of an angry God. Now, we know through our election series uh, we've studied, we looked at, we did four messages on the eternal covenant of God, and my question is, I don't know if it could ever be answered. You'd have to do a survey among just religious people, evangelical religious people, and ask them about what was God's plan before salvation happens or you experience salvation. Can you go backwards? How far can you go back? What would people say? What would they would they have anything to do with an eternal plan? Would they know anything about the eternality of a plan? Would they have anything any knowledge about the plan of the cross? Or is everything just happenstance and luck and free will? I think that's what it is for most people. You know, they, they can't think back that the scripture as we studied in those four parts in, that, in the series, that God before time, actually, this is what he has planned from eternity. And it's set. And nothing's going to change about it. And as we talked about that in the series, there's a few things about that that's to our advantage. We can't touch that. <laughs> we can't get in there and dabble with it and mess with it and make adjustments. The other thing is when this took place, God didn't counsel with us. He didn't look to us to respond, you know, looking down through the future to see what we would do and then respond as if we were his counselors by seeing what we would do. He didn't, he, in other words, he didn't ask us, you know, how are you going to react? I'm going to run these tests. I'm going to see how you react, and then I'm going to go ahead and run my plan accordingly. It didn't work that way. So all this was done before time so that it wouldn't work that way. As we read in Ephesians 1, it talks about the purpose that is within himself. So if God was to like look to us to see what we would do, that's not the purpose of God in himself. That's looking to us again for what's going on with us and what we would do. And he responds to us and takes counsel from us. The purpose of God is, is that, again, in himself. Let's go to Ephesians 1. I didn't have that in my notes, but... 
let's look there and, and see that idea. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. According as he had chosen us, the Father's chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, in which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound toward us in all wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. There you go. Nothing outside of himself caused him to move in our direction. It was what was in himself was the cause. And we know all the splendid attributes of God. There were various things within himself that caused him to move to purpose this and to fulfill the infant beginning of it. So these things, again, are settled before time, not changing. It's not going to happen. We can't get to them. We can't change them. The enemy can't get to them. The enemy can't change them. The names were written in the, in the book before time. That's not going to change. These things are fixed. They're eternally fixed forever. And I think we have to see, in reference to the sovereignty of God, just that. God is sovereign. This is what he's done. You can't stop him. It's either a person is loved and chosen or they're not, and it's up to God. He's the captain of all destinations, destinies, and we are not. He is in charge of all destinies. God has that divine right, and nobody can take that away from him. So those that are against that idea look in their minds and form a God of their imagination that they can control that they can rule over, that follows behind them. And they have a ring around that God's nose, and their will is stronger than that God. It's typical. It's typical. We used to be in that situation before God opened our eyes. So these things are settled in the mind of God forever. We know that the plan was for Christ in the fullness of time. So there's a plan. It unfolds in time. It's made known, it's made manifest, as the scripture says. We know that the plan was for Christ to come down in a body. We talk about this every week, just about. That this is the purpose of God, that he take on a body. And he has to do this in order to be a sacrifice. He came down in the fullness of time, born of a woman, it says. Born under the law. He took on flesh. To deny that he came in the flesh, just to be of the spirit of Antichrist. Christ came in the flesh. Hebrews 2 tells us that he needed a body to be like his people, to be likened to his brethren. 
so that he could represent them. If you want to turn to Hebrews uh, 2.16, it says, For truly he did not take on the nature of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham, referring to a body. Therefore in all things it behooved him to be made like his brothers, that he, for what reason? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ had to take on a body so that he could be the propitiation, but he needed that body to be a sacrifice. And he, as a sinless sacrifice, is the propitiation for sins. Now, propitiation has to do with uh, taking on wrath taking on wrath and satisfying it and turning it away from people so they can be reconciled. So this is the one that we're talking about, this Christ. And there's a point in time where this plan takes place where as, as we get into it further, where there'll be the hour has come where he will mount that cross and that he will be in God's hands and God will pour out his wrath and anger and the father actually participating in the death of his own son. This is totally foreign to religious people, that the father participated in the death of his own son. You hear, we've been seeing on the goofy, famous channels on TV, and they ask the question, the History Channel, they ask the question, you know, who killed, who killed Jesus? Hopefully by the time we're done here, you'll know. It's quite obvious by the title of the message. Now, I've tried to stress this before, and I'm going to try to stress it again, and, and it should help us shore up the focus and importance of everything that we think about as far as focus and what's the most important thing in the Scripture and, all of, and of course, all of life. We know that the character attributes of God were magnified like never before or since when Christ was made to be sin and the Father poured out his holy wrath out on his Son. Think about that. You can see the attributes of God in creation. You can see all kind of glory there. You can see the miracles of God. You can see the power of God. You can see all these different things historically that God has done with people, to people. You can see his providence. You can see that he sustains everything. You can see he controls the weather. He's an absolute sovereign in control of everything. But zeroing in on this time frame when Christ went to the cross is the most magnified time of his person that has ever been or will ever be in eternity. We can see him the clearest right there. That interchange that happened between the father and the son when the son was a sacrifice and he put away sin. That's not much time right there. It would behoove us to like be experts at that time, what happened during that time frame, instead of worrying about dinosaurs and finding the lost cup or whatever people are looking for nowadays 
the what's the, the shroud? <laughs> Come on now. I was talking with someone this week about what is popular a lot of times on social media. You'll have a post about women wearing a head covering. There'll be 700 comments on it. And you bring up something like this, and they'll <laughs> don't get any attention. Does that make sense? It, it should make sense that that's the way that it is. Because the gospel is so rare, God's people are so rare, and religion is so far-fetched running after chasing dust in the wind. So this display, for those few hours on the cross, it shows us that sin will not be tolerated by God. Will not be tolerated by God. He is of, as it says in the Old Testament, he is of two pure eyes to behold evil. In other words, he can't let sin go unpunished. He is faithful to his own character. He's holy, just, righteous. He must punish sin. So his purity and perfection are such that he is always consistent and faithful with himself. And that he does in his will, as he carries out his purpose, everything is consistent with the fact that he's holy and he must punish sin. He's a just God. And this is what separates him from idols. So that the purpose of God to accomplish the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners as he magnified his own law by the fulfillment of it and the satisfaction of it. So the law is part of what is in play in getting this done. It's part of the avenue of propitiation so that he can be both a just God and a Savior. So in other words, what I'm getting at is when this takes place, it's going to take place in a right way. When it's all said and done on the backside of it, you're going to look at the scales of the balance of justice and you're going to see that there's equity there, that it is done right. God stays and remains faithful to himself. He is able to justly punish Christ and then he's able to justify his people that Christ died for and remain faithful to his character and be both a just God and Savior. He'll be just when he justifies. In other words, he doesn't cheat. He doesn't cheat. He follows through with this. He, he doesn't pretend. He doesn't say, okay, Christ, I know we've got to kill you here to do this. Since we're supernatural and all, we can just pretend like this is going to happen and nobody will know. We'll sweep it under the carpet and we'll let you slide. No. Christ took on flesh and suffered as the God-man. This had to take place. So God, by his wisdom, was able to justify ungodly sinners and remain holy and righteous in doing so. He didn't know, in other words, we know who we are. We know what we've done. We know what we're guilty of. To be able to come out pure on the other side, we, it takes this death of this one. So in, in order for God to justify an ungodly sinner, he has to kill a perfect one in their place. And that is the way that God can save me without getting his own hands dirty. He's holy. He requires death. So therefore, he must have his blessed son step in to die that death. And this was a plan from all eternity. So this is the Christ that is in the hands of an angry God. 
God must punish sin. Therefore, if there's salvation, God must punish Christ. In other words. So the only way God could accomplish this salvation is to remain holy and just and righteous by placing the perfect sinless substitute Christ in the hands of his own anger. When the sin of the sheep were transferred to his account and placed on him so that he would bear those sins in his body, carry those sins in his body. They were laid on him, as we'll see here in another text. Imputed is the idea, charged to the account of, transferred over to him, and then he became the guilty one. That's how effectual it is. It works. The transfer, the legal transfer of sin is so effectual. It works so well that when God did it, he looked at Christ and said, this one's guilty. The sinless one that had no sin, didn't know any sin, now has become guilty through the means of imputation. That's how real imputation is. It's not pretend. So the result was that Christ actually put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He put it away. It's gone. He drank damnation dry. He satisfied law and justice for those sins. There's no more to ask from God to me about my sin because Christ put it away. And this reconciled his elect people by bringing in an everlasting righteousness to be imputed to their account. Now, we're very familiar with, I'll just read this. You probably have this memorized. We're going to go back to our original text here in a minute, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he, the Father, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, the elect believers, who knew no sin, Christ didn't know any sin, that we, God's people, might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is when this took place. When the Father made Christ to be sin, when that happened, the result of that, Christ fell into the hands of an angry God. What's it say toward the end of one of the chapters of Hebrews? It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Christ knew he was going to have to go through this. He prayed in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass, this cup of wrath pass from me. So, you know what? It wasn't possible. And it didn't. And he drank it. And that was the plan. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 So this was Christ obeying his Father, the will of the Father in the plan and purpose of what they planned to do to redeem the people that God loved. This death had to take place. This punishment, this suffering had to take place. This satisfaction, that's what propitiation is, a satisfaction of God's law and justice, taking on that wrath until it is satisfied. And we know that that's what took place because he brought it to a certain point and he said, it's finished. That was when it was satisfied. So we see the love that the son had for the father agreeing to take on the punishment for sin 
And that pleased the Father when that took place, that the Father had pleasure in that. And what love the Father has for the Son, I think it was John 17, uh, Christ said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. And we who are believers, we benefit from all this being accepted in the love of Christ who showed his love by his action. This was the action from his love for his people and his willingness to, to save us by grace alone. So the text that we started out in Zechariah 13, I just want to look at that first portion there in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Now, later on it talks about scattering the sheep and all that, and, and part of that is quoted in Matthew, proving that this is talking about Christ. I mean, you don't need that to prove it. You can see this is talking about Christ. But in Matthew, it, it takes part of that quote when the sheep are scattered during the time after they took Christ to the cross and the disciples were, were scattered in Matthew that this text is quoted. But notice the language there. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. So the sword was in reserve when the purpose of God before time took place. There was a reservation of a sword being set up. This was the purpose of the whole time. In other words, the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ through this language shown to be the sword was set up from eternity. And it was kind of like put to rest, put to sleep for a long time. And when his hour was come, remember throughout the Gospels, things would take place and Christ would say, well, my hour's not come. And he would do this and that and the other. Sometimes the crowd was going after him, uh, hating on him, trying to stone him. Sometimes he would slip through the crowd and they didn't get him because his hour was not yet come. That phrase is repeated all over the place. When John 17, he prays, he says, Father, my hour, the hour has come. It's time. This is it. You know what he's saying? Sword, wake up. Sword's going to wake up. It's going to smite the shepherd. Awake, O sword. Look at uh, Acts, Acts 2.22. Again, uh, let, me, let me bring your minds to... So we have to be ready to tell people about all this. Let me again bring your minds to the question I asked you in the introduction. How many people in the world that you that you associate with know about this plan even people that are religious and they start talking about god and the bible and spiritual things steer them start steering them towards these things getting thinking about like does god just do things haphazardly or does he have a plan looky here acts 2 and verse 22 you men of israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, and ye yourselves also know. Notice this. Him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain, whom God has raised up and loosened the pains of death because it was not possible 
that he should be holdened of it. Verse 23, it says that God determined for every single one of these things to take place in the plan of bringing Christ to this tree to be killed. God ran it. God ran it all. God controlled it all. And as we've studied before, and I think we'll look at some more here pretty soon about when we look at reprobation in the um, election series, how that when we deal with uh, characters like um, Judas, you know, they're around the table there and they're uh, eating the Last Supper. And um, the whole thing's odd to me, um, the way that it went down. He that dips the sop in the thing is the one that's going to do it and that I give the sop to and then go ahead, do what you're going to do quickly. It's like he, <laughs> Judas had no control. Can you see the sovereignty of God there? It's There it is. Go do your thing. It's part of this. It's part of this here in Acts 2, 23. The determinate counsel, the foreknowledge of God, micromanaging everything. Judas, go ahead, get it done. <laughs> Judas didn't say, wait a minute, let me exercise my free will. Go to Luke 23. So Christ said his hour has come. He said that in John 17. It, what do you say there also? He said, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. That's, that's the purpose of, of these things, to glorify God. And that's the other thing nobody knows about nowadays. How can they? It's all about them, right? The gospel to them is what they do with it. They don't even have the gospel to begin with, but it's it's something that they do with it to make it work. It's about them, according to them. Luke twenty three forty four. So the, the hours come and, and Jesus gets taken away. Judas does his thing, gets betrayed with a kiss, and he gets tried just goofy stuff he has to go through these in his humility, putting up with people, false testimonies and lies and stuff. And Pilate saying, <laughs> questioning, you know, truth. He says, what is truth? And there he was standing in front of him. So the sword is awakened. And it says here in Luke 23 and verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all of the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. In other words, it was torn in the middle. And Jesus had cried with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. So verse 44 says that for a space of uh, three hours that God turned the lights off. And to me it seems like this is the, the most intensified part of time when the activity was happening between the father and son and the father's wrath was pouring on the son and the lights were turned out so that we couldn't see it. Even if the lights were on, we couldn't interpret what was going on anyway. Only by what is said by God in other parts of his word.
what is said by God that maybe will help us interpret. Well, our text talks about the, the sword. Look at Isaiah 53.10. We look at this a lot. Again, uh, I want us to emphasize to people when we talk to them that God the Father is an actual participant in the death of his son. And you know, here's the other thing too. If you want to get something done, you got to do it right. You got to do it yourself. You ever hear that? That's what God says. <laughs> this was between the father and the son. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul a sacrifice for sin. So here it says God the Father was, he had pleasure in exercising his wrath and anger and justice and righteousness and all those attributes, exercising them in punishing Christ for that sin and it being completely satisfied. That can't happen any other place. Sin is not satisfied anywhere else. Eternity in hell, it's never satisfied. Right here, this is the only place it could be satisfied. And it looks like that because of who Christ is, he was able to do it in a short span. Because of who he is. That's why we can never ever do anything in connection to salvation. Nothing. We're not qualified to be part of it, to fix it. Only Christ can do that because of who he is. He is the perfect God-man. The only one that can absorb and satisfy the wrath of God once and for all time. That's what needs to be done to be justified. To have the wrath of God be propitiated once and for all time. It can't come back up again. If it does, it's over. It's got to be completely satisfied. We can't do that. We can't begin to get started. There's nothing in us qualified to be part of it. It says in, uh, while we're there, look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And here it is. Who did the imputing? God the Father. The Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity. It says of us all. And this is talking about all the elect, of course, because... We know that in Second um, Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, because the trespasses were imputed to Christ. So all the iniquities or trespasses or lawlessnesses or guilt, all of that was imputed or laid on Christ. And after that was laid on, that's verse 6, verse 10 that we just looked at. 
then comes the bruising for those iniquities until enough of it was taken and he said it's finished. It was a sweet smelling savor unto God, the sacrifice was. Let me read something real quick out of, um, I think it's Ephesians 5. Yeah, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and having given himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. The father liked it. He was satisfied by it. A sweet smelling savor as compared to a stench. He said that about other sacrifices. I don't know. Stinks. We've been talking about things that stink, self-righteousness and so on. And uh, it's an abomination to God. Look at verse 11 there of Isaiah 53. What is taking place? There's some, there's some travail taking place. He shall see the travail of his soul. This is, the word soul was used earlier. It's just talking about the person of Christ. I heard certain people talk about their soul sufferings. What's that even mean? The suffering is of the person of Christ. If you talk about there was a shipwreck and lost 21 souls, talking about people. It's people. This is talking about Christ, a person. He shall see the travail of his person. And he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He shall carry their iniquities. That's why he needs that body. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And because he had poured out his soul or person unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So we see here that God is good to his people via the cross, the grace of his cross. The goodness of God leads men to repentance, it says in Romans 2.4. Do we think that we can scare men out of hell and into heaven you think if I tell enough scary stories about the reality of hell and I believe hell is real I believe hell is eternal if I told enough of those stories that would scare people into conversion you know what that kind of fear does unless the gospel is there fruit unto death it stirs up the conscience we've studied this before seeks its own reconciliation by trying to establish a righteousness of its own. When somebody gets really scared really fast, the first thing they do, and I've told Ruby before, what's the first thing you don't do in an emergency? Panics, you got it. Well, what does the sinner do that is not converted? In, in this emergency type setting, when they see wrath, they panic. And what comes out? Dead works, fruit unto death, self-righteousness. 
self-reconciliation, self-justification. They can't stop. It's a trap. They can do nothing but that. It's automatic. But the goodness of God leads men to repentance. The goodness of God is that he will show them the cross. He will show them the gospel through the cross. And if you want to see some punishment that doesn't compare to hell, look at the cross. The intensified punishment of this person that is in the hands of an angry God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the wrath of God is to be seen. The clearest is in the cross. Look at uh, Luke 16 and verse 24. Luke 16, 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip his tip of his finger into the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now this was the Lazarus that was the beggar that had boils. It's not the, the other Lazarus that was raised from the dead. Just keep, let's keep them distinct. But now, middle, middle verse 25, but now he is comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, there's a great chasm fixed between you and us so that they desiring to pass from here to you cannot. They can't. Nor can they pass over to us from there. He said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, what? That's a good idea. He said, did he say that's a good idea? It would scare the hell out of him, won't it? If anything will work, it'll be sending somebody back that's smoldering and smoking from hell. He didn't say that. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the gospel from the Old Testament. This is what's going to keep them away from this place. And look at this verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one would go to them from the dead, they would repent. Now, you would assume this is talking about from hell, if it's from the dead. Verse 31 says, And he said unto him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, the gospel in the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded, even though one rose from the dead. It doesn't work that way. The gospel is the only means that wake people up to the truth of the goodness of God, of salvation and the death of Christ. It's the only way it works. You can't scare people into heaven or out of hell. It takes the gospel. Now let's, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians real quick and probably going to finish here. So this thing about Christ in the hands of an angry God, I want, to, I want us to think about that, that it's them by themselves. 
First of all, Christ did this by himself. He was not aided by anybody. He did this by himself. He carried his cross, sin imputed to him, went, died. He did it all himself. The government of salvation was on his shoulders. He is the representative and substitute for God's people. Things happened to him to get this done. He did things and things happened to him. And all this makes up the gospel. So we're excluded from it because it's a past historical event. When he said it's finished, it was like sealed up. All besides the resurrection three days later. Now look at the look at the account here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the most one of the most generic definitions of the gospel in the scripture. And brothers, I declare unto you the gospel. Paul's getting ready to tell them what the gospel is, which I preach to you, and you've already you've received it, and you're currently standing in it, the gospel. By which you're also kept safe if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. I delivered unto you, first of all, uh, that which I received, that, here it is, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Those two verses, verses three and four. There's some things to take note. I don't want to go overboard here on this but and spend too much time, but there's the blatant statement in there according to the scriptures in both verses, according to the scriptures. So the gospel has to be according to the scriptures. False gospels are not according to the scriptures, right? Also, there's, there are some words that are su supplied by translators. How that Christ died, some of the versions say, and originally the how that is not there, but it makes sense. How that he died is part of the gospel. But most people, when we start talking about the gospel, we believe they want to object by saying, you guys are adding to the gospel. So in conclusion, I just want to kind of like ask this question, who's adding? All right, this is pretty important. When we talk about Christ alone, that we're saved by the death of Christ alone, this means like I just described it this morning, this historical event that took place, that Christ came and he died for his people, and he did it all himself. He took on the wrath of the Father, and he satisfied that, and he said, it is finished, and it's done. It's a historical event. It's not what I do with it. It's already objectively outside of myself. I have to believe it. That's all I can do is just believe it. doesn't make it work when I believe it. It works just fine by itself. It's sufficient in and of itself. When I talk about sufficiency, that's what I mean. The death by itself is sufficient to save. So a lot of people say, well, because you demand the truth not to have a lie in it. And of course, let me just cut to the chase. When we talk about you know universal atonement, Christ dying for all people and the majority of those people going to hell which we call sometimes Arminianism, Pelagianism, whatever. When we demand that that's a false gospel, and that won't work as a gospel, because I demand that the gospel only have truth in it. That's not too much of a demand. The scripture demands that of its own self. 
that the truth is of no lie. Then they'll bring me to, just like yesterday, I saw somebody on social media. They'll come right here, and they'll say, this is the gospel. And then you kind of say, well, I'll tell you what. I, I know Mormons would probably come here. Mormons would believe this. They would say they believe this. Catholics, really quick, they would say, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, Christ died, buried according to Scripture. Yeah. Seventh-day Adventists, Oneness Pentecostals, all kind of cults. They would run here and they say, oh, yeah, I believe verses 3 and 4. No doubt about it. They might die for that. Well, we know they don't believe the gospel. And when I say that, they'll say, well, they're adding to the gospel. Now, wait a minute. When I say the gospel is Christ alone, and I really mean alone, I'm adding to the gospel somehow. <laughs> when I demand that the truth only be allowed to be the truth, that means somehow I'm adding. But when an Armenian says, Christ died for all, the majority of those people go to hell, and you have to do something to be saved by believing or repenting or persevering, or it just depends on what denomination, they're adding. But when we demand Christ alone, we're accused of adding. What's more safe? What's more safe? What's left? We talked about the offense of the cross last week. That is the offense of the cross. It's Christ alone without adding. So the simplicity that is in Christ, that is in uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, 11, I think, talks about another Christ, another gospel, another spirit. Paul says, I'm jealous with a godly jealousy. I'm worried about these other people who are lying to you. They're going to distract you from the simplicity that's in Christ, the singleness that is in Christ, the single, in other words, Christ alone, no additions. Singleness as compared to double. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's a way that seems right unto a man, and that way is death. And it's a hybrid way. It's grace plus works. And that is pretty much all religion. The majority of religion is grace plus works. It's adding something to grace. But we have to see that as we sit back and, and watch historically this event take place where it's just, it's just the Father and the Son. That's it. You guys just leave it there. The Father and the Son. During that time, let it go. <laughs> Don't touch it. Watch it. Look at it. Take it in. Just believe it. Just look. Count on what's done outside of yourself. Between the Father and the Son, as the Son took on wrath for your sin. And if you're thinking about a son that took on wrath for people that will face their own wrath for their own sin and hell to end, you're thinking about the wrong son. It's the wrong one. It's a different Christ. I know that's a different Christ just as much as I know the true Christ is the true Christ. I can't. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's a two-sided coin. It's either he succeeded or he failed. It's not a combination. So one last point. Having said all that and having seen the particulars and the distinctions of the successful, effectual, efficient, accomplished death of Christ as compared to 
And that's the one that's the offense of the cross. As compared to the one that just renders men savable based on further conditions. When we would tolerate that one, that second one that doesn't work, and we would be ashamed of the true gospel that is far, far worse than... Remember, we looked uh, a week or two ago about Peter switching tables. When the uh, Jews came in, Peter was sitting with some Gentiles. It's Acts 15. And um, he feared for some reason, and he just he moved over. I'm going to sit with the Jews. And it was just that that gesturing, that, that moving, just switching tables. Didn't say anything. He just switched tables. The implication of that, and Paul said, Peter, <laughs> you do not walk uprightly according to the gospel. Peter repented of it. We now, now looking at a message and saying this other gospel that has Christ dying for people that end up in hell is a legitimate form of the gospel. If you say that, how much worse is that than just switching tables? It's far worse. We don't even know, back when the scriptures were written, that anybody was talking about a universal atonement. It didn't come until later in history. It was unheard of. All kind of garbage has crept up as time goes on. So we, we have to make distinctions. We can't not make distinctions. As we said last week, skillfully guarding the offense of the cross. That's what the title of the message was. So we said that if you take away the offense of the cross, you void out the gospel. That's what we said. I believe that's true. Take the offense out, destroy the gospel. I skipped through a bunch of stuff here at the end, but kind of uh, foggy-headed. Questions or comments? Would it, let me re-ask that question here at the end. Do you think the average Joe thinks about whether or not the Father had any involvement in the death of Christ? Do you think that people even know that? Don't they usually just look and say, well, these Romans... So because on the History Channel, that's what, I mean, the Roman soldiers... Or the Jews, you know, there's this debate over, over who did it. Christ volunteered to be a sacrifice for his father. And his father is the one that put the death sentence on him when sin was imputed to him. And Christ satisfied that death sentence. And he voluntarily, he said, it's finished. And he gave up the ghost. And is rewarded for it at the right hand of the Father, exalted on high. 